back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast. So nestled towards the end of O's Manual Chapter 51, we have a section dedicated to subarachnoid hemorrhage. Given that a lot of ICU bed days are given over to managing subarachnoid hemorrhage, I felt it might have warranted its own chapter. Uh, indeed, looking at its prevalence in fellowship examinations, it does seem that a fair deal of attention should be given to SAH. It stands apart from the usual intracranial bleeding where the typical treatment and discussions are all focused on supportive care and the only nuance really comes in when you get to BP management. Whereas in subarachnoid hemorrhage you have a whole bunch of interesting and well-proven interventions that can improve outcomes for the lucky patients who haven't already prognosticated themselves by presenting with the GCS of 3. So as a starter for 10, in which meningeal space in the brain do you find a subarachnoid hemorrhage? The clue, thankfully, is in the name. The space between the brain-adhering pia matter and the filmy arachnoid matter is where you'll find a subarachnoid hemorrhage. This is the same space that CSF flows in from its genesis in the choroid plexi of the ventricles and its journey to reabsorption in the arachnoid granulations. Also in this space lies the cerebral vasculature that has a tendency to become aneurysmal and rupture arterial blood into this space. Blood in the subarachnoid space is easily seen on a simple dry CT scan, particularly in the first few hours. It has now become a test so good that people would suggest that you have a negative CT in the first six hours, then you can probably skip um, the de rigueur LP that has been all the rage for the past century. Um, though I'll admit that that question is delving much more into the realm of emergency medicine than hardcore critical care. In a critical care exam type STEM, you might be faced with, um, let's say, the story of someone in their 60s with a history of poorly controlled hypertension who smokes, takes cocaine, has polycystic kidneys. All of these are identified as risk factors for subarachnoid hemorrhage, though such a combination, I imagine, exists only on exams. In the STEM, they're likely to have a reduced GCS, maybe let's say in the 13 to 14 range, with a BP somewhere north of 170 millimetres of mercury. You'll be given a CT scan showing some diffuse subarachnoid hemorrhage, but you're waiting on an angio and maybe the neurosurgical centre to get back to you, etc. So imagine a question now like, what are your immediate priorities in management? Given that 85% of subarach is aneurysmal uh, and they need definitive treatment for those aneurysms and that definitive treatment is likely not available in your hospital, then getting that angio done is certainly a priority. And by angio, I mean the CT angio. But probably more acutely will be the basics of um, your assessment. So things like ABCs with particular attention to keeping up to getting that blood pressure under control. The biggest risk to life in the first few hours is going to be a rebleed, um, and that happens in maybe 20% of patients. Getting the BP down to somewhere south of 160 millimeters of mercury is likely to be a good idea, with the ubiquitous libidolol probably being the most accessible and available option. Um, avoid the temptation to use things like GTN and the foil wrap madness of nitroprusside, as both can cause a little cerebral vasodilation that you probably want to avoid in this scenario. Bonus points here for a decent analgesic, something like fentanyl, it'll help with the pain, uh, and in addition an anti-emetic, as vomiting does indeed tend to make the blood pressure spike quite a lot. So the stem of the question continues and the plot thickens. While waiting for the CT angio, the patient becomes obtunded and gets intubated, where, where of course great attention was paid to the hemodynamics. And now the CT shows more blood, some hydrocephalus, and the angio shows a big posterior communicating aneurysm. What now, genius? 
Hydrocephalus is a relatively common event in subarach, and the theory is that blood in the CSF space blocks up those arachnoid granulations, preventing reabsorption, and so you've got ongoing production and failure to reabsorb, and you get hydrocephalus. There may be other reasons, including a clot in one of the little intricate drainage canals in the CSF circulation, but either way, you're going to get more CSF than you want with a concomitant rise in intracranial pressure that quickly becomes life-threatening if not drained with something like an EVD. Now, if you're a neurosurgeon and someone gives you the story of a GCS of 13 to 14 with some subarach and an aneurysm, then your interest is definitely piqued. But this is likely going to involve a transfer to the neurosurgical centre um, within 24 hours to get some cording done. But it's unlikely to require any surgery per se by the neurosurgeon at 3 in the morning. However, if you give them that same story, but now you add some hydrocephalus and a falling GCS, you have the type of thing that will buy your patient an emergency blue light transfer over to the operating theatre in the neurosurgical centre at 3 in the morning. So what's going to happen with the aneurysm? So assuming we keep the blood pressure under control and we correct any coagulopathy, then that aneurysm is going to need secured. If possible, this should be done by a neurointerventionalist um, with a coiling procedure and not by craniotomy and clipping of aneurysm. This is now well defined and supported by randomised control level evidence that this is the better approach is coiling rather than clipping. Given the complexity of these procedures, the timescales provided for which it has to be secured is generally in the 24 to 48 hour range, and this allows them to be done as daytime procedures most of the time. Now, of course, depending on the anatomy of the aneurysm, some of them are not suitable for coiling, so clipping, of course, still has um, a place for management. So the scene fades, and the time jumps, and the question stem is now ICU day five. So you've given the patient um, a sedation break, and it's noted that the patient is not moving their left-hand side. What, pray tell, is this new calamity? Has the poor soul now had a big embolic stroke in addition to a subarach? Um, while this clinical presentation is definitely cerebral ischemia, it is not stroke, and instead it rejoices in the name of delayed cerebral ischemia, or DCI to its friends, uh, or vasospasm to the people who knew it in high school but haven't bothered to stay in touch. DCI is a clearly recognised phenomenon in subarachnoid hemorrhage patients and is typically found to coexist with the radiological phenomenon of vasospasm, where the artery spasms and has reduced flow to the brain. So vasospasm itself is very common and you'll find it if you go looking in about 70% of subarach patients, but only about 30% of vasospasm is DCI. Okay, so the definition of DCI requires a focal neurological deficit or a drop in two points of the GCS in addition to the imaging findings of ischemia. So the typical response to this in days of yore would have been triple, triple H therapy, consisting of hypervolemia, hypertension and high haemoglobin. And over the passage of years, the only remaining tenet of the glorious trio is probably induced hypertension, which does indeed seem to have some of the kind of effect on improving those ischemic symptoms. So don't be surprised to find your neurosurgeons requesting map targets like 90 or 100 millimetres of mercury in those scenarios. The single best treatment for DCI we have is actually a prophylactic treatment in the form of the calcium channel blocker, nemodipine. 60 milligrams given for hourly is the standard recommended from day of rupture for, given for three weeks or so. And it's not entirely clear how this works, but it is fairly clear at this stage that it does. Um, lastly, I'd say it's worth noting that DCI is not a day one concern for your subarachnoid hemorrhage patient. And incidence for this peaks somewhere in the 4 to 10 day range. So, of course, you could do huge amounts in subarachnoid. It's just kind of a, a bit of a taster post on that. Uh, and for reading, certainly for an exam level introduction to subarachnoid, um, O's chapter 51 does cover all of the basics. Um, other sources, as we always refer to in this podcast, of deranged physiology and life in the fast lane, um, and in particular in the netbook of critical care, all cover this quite well. Thanks for listening, and I'll speak to you next time.